Well, in an odd sort of way, that singing reminded me of the other night when uh, we, I was in Fort Worth at the Conservative Theological Society meeting this last week. It was uh, quite a, an enjoyable time, not only at the conference, but because I was met there by uh, several people who are uh, tapers from uh, Preston City Bible Church. They'd come from a couple of different places. Jim Myers and his uh, wife were also there. And on Tuesday, they, um, there was another pastor there, a good friend of ours, who we have on our prayer list, Bruce Bumgardner. And Bruce and I have the same birthday. And it was my 50th birthday, so now I'm an old man. And so we all went out to dinner and just had a fantastic time together. There were several there whom I've known and been friends with for many years, and we uh, had a great dinner. And then during the evening, Dick uh, Mills was there, who was Jim Myers' sort of home base supply guy, takes care of his home side, stateside business. And they used to sing in a barbershop quartet. And there were also three or four other people in the crowd that, uh, in the group that also had wonderful voices. And we ended up uh, closing down the evening singing uh, quite a few of the old favorite hymns and it was just a fantastic uh, evening. In fact, one of the uh, uh, one of my friends from Houston, a pa- pastor, a black pastor down there, came up to me and he said, because we were meeting in a side room off of the restaurant, he said, Robbie, we had church in a bar tonight. We had church in a tavern. Church in a tavern. So uh, we had a, it was a great time of fellowship and and uh, things went well at the uh, at the uh, my two presentations at the uh, Theological Society meeting. Well, before we get started this uh, this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to, for you to use First John one nine if necessary, and to get our focus and attention onto the teaching of the Word this morning, and away from the distractions of the last week and the coming week, so that we can study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together this morning to study your word, that as believer priests, we each need to continuously have our thinking renovated by your word. This is done under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who is our guide, who is our our teacher, who is the one who illuminates our thinking to understand your word, that we might choose to uh, uh, either apply it or to not apply it. Father, it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who makes possible the spiritual life, and he is the one who produces maturity. And so we need to make sure that we are always walking by means of the Holy Spirit, walking in fellowship with you. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, help us to see how they apply to our own lives and our own uh, understanding of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we will continue our study here of this first major problem in the congregation at Corinth. Their problem is first outlined back in chapter 1, 
verse 12, where Paul states, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Now I think that what Paul is doing here at the very beginning, using himself, Apollos, and Peter, Cephas was Peter's Aramaic name, or I am of Christ, Paul isn't really focusing on the individuals who are seem to be the the heads of the various uh, dis, the various groups in uh, the various cliques that are developing in the congregation. I I base that on the way he uses Apollos and Timothy uh, later in chapter four and uses himself. He is using himself as an example to stand for those who are creating problems in the congregation, are sort of developing personality cults. And the reason is that in the Greek culture out of which they've been saved, the idea is that truth is really related to a personality. Truth is related to, to the person who can best express it. Truth has something to do with, with uh, style and rhetoric, and truth is not objective in the sense that it is something revealed by God, and the role of the pastor teacher, the role of the apostle, the role of the prophet is a purely secondary role as one who communicates that which God has given him. The role of the pastor teacher, the role of the apostle, the role of the prophet was not to invent things. The role of the pastor teacher was not to innovate in the realm of truth or to originate truth, but simply to transmit the truth in terms of the transmission of the Word of God and the canon of Scripture, but also to explain and expound that truth and relate it to life. The Greek concept of truth was based on a more relative basis, much as truth in our culture is based on a relative basis. And so people were attracted and they would align themselves up with basic key leaders in the different philosophical systems. Now, the way Paul addresses this problem in Corinth is not to, not to start at a superficial level with the problem itself, but he goes to the core issue, which is understanding who and what we are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That every single believer, whether you have tremendous talents and abilities or whether you have none, whether you are rich or whether you are poor, whether you are well-educated or not educated at all, whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are an adult or a child, every one of us has the same problem. We're all sinners. We all are born with a sin nature. Adam's original sin has been imputed to that sin nature, and we have committed personal sins. And the bottom line from the Scripture is that we are born condemned because of that inheritance of a sin nature, and Adam's original sin. We are not condemned because we commit personal sins. That is a consequence of the first two problems. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born sinners. We are born corrupt. We are born with the sin nature and Adam's original sin imputed to that at the instant of our physical birth. Consequently, every one of us is brought down to the same level at salvation. We all have to recognize that Jesus did everything. We do nothing. We don't bring anything to God. He does everything for us. That's what grace is all about. So grace is the great leveler, and the cross is the great leveler. And then we build from there. So at some level, at the beginning of salvation... 
Humility is at the very core of salvation. It's at that point we recognize that we do nothing, that Christ has done everything for us. It's not based on who we are. It's not based on our talents, our abilities, our IQ, or anything else. The problem is with the spiritual life, often we forget that point of humility at the cross, recognizing that Jesus did everything for us and we do nothing. And then after salvation, we start thinking we can help God out or that somehow God should be impressed with our own talents and our own abilities. And this was a problem that the Greeks faced. As a result of that, Jesus, I mean, Paul is going to focus their attention on everything they got at the point of salvation in terms of positional truth, that everything they have was, spiritually speaking, was given to them. All of their spiritual assets, all of the provisions for the spiritual life were given equally to every single believer at salvation. We all have the same assets. We all have the same relationship to the Holy Spirit. We all have the same... Uh, scriptures. We all have the same position in Christ. We all have the same priesthood. We all have the, the same inheritance. All of these things are given to us at the instant of salvation. And from that point on, the issue is, what are you going to do with that which God supplied? So he starts at the basics, and then in chapter 2, he goes through the, the uh, description of how we come to learn God's Word, and that it is based upon, first, regeneration, and secondly, right relationship to God the Holy Spirit. In the third chapter, he covered the issue of the judgment seat of Christ, that the issue just isn't being saved. It has to do with spirituality and spiritual growth, and those who are who do not grow spiritually, who do not advance to spiritual maturity, who do not recognize the fact that they have been set apart as a temple of the Holy Spirit for the indwelling of the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. And then in chapter 4, he comes back to the issue, applying all of this doctrine. See, so often people get the idea that somehow doctrine is just abstract. Doctrine has nothing to do with everyday thought. Doctrine has nothing to do with everyday realities. I'm struggling to pay my bills, struggling to get through school uh, in a difficult marriage, having problems with my health. Somehow doctrine just seems so abstract. Well, unfortunately, there are too many people, too many pastors, that when they, because they have at some level in their own thinking, they've bought into this idea that somehow theology or doctrine is abstract that when they start teaching it, they make it abstract, and nobody ever sees how it relates to everyday life. And that's a problem of communication and not a problem of doctrine or a problem related to theology. See, I had a seminary professor who used to say any theology or any doctrine that isn't at some level uh, applicable is not biblical because all doctrine, all theology at some point is applicable and affects at some level how you think and it may not uh, be the kind of thing that you go home and you use this afternoon or you use this next week, but it is important for building your frame of reference so that in the future you can look at and approach life and evaluate life and think critically about life and the decisions in life from divine viewpoint. So all theology at some level is always applicable or it's not biblical because all theology reflects God's view of reality. And so if we are 
divorced from doctrine and we're not paying attention to doctrine, then we're not going to understand reality, which is what God, the way God has made the creation. So now in chapter 4, Paul is going to apply this to the relationship of the Corinthians to their teachers. He has established these doctrines in first, in the, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and now he's going to bring it home in terms of how the congregation relates to its teachers. And the application, of course, for this, even though uh, the teacher in this primary aspect or in terms of strict interpretation has to do with the Apostle Paul, it is also applicable to a congregation's uh, relationship to its pastor-teacher. Paul begins in verse 1 with an imperative. It doesn't appear to be an imperative in the English, but it is in the Greek. The first phrase reads, Let a man regard us in this manner. The New King James translates it, Let a man so consider us. The verb is logizomai, translated regard or consider. It really has the idea of thinking. Logizomai. Logizomai was a word that was used in accounting, and it had to do with uh, rational thinking and orderly and an orderly presentation of information. So he begins with this verb logizomai, which is a present middle imperative. Now the thing about logizomai, and this always sooner or later this always throws off somebody who who uh, doesn't know Greek. Whenever you have a verb in Greek that ends with this suffix, this is spelled L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Whenever you have a dictionary form of the verb that ends with this O-M-I ending, that's what is called a deponent verb. Now, that's just the grammatical category, and a deponent verb means that it has a middle or passive ending, but it has an active voice meaning. The reason is that just in the development of the language, for some reason, in that these particular class of verbs, the active voice form just dropped out of use. I remember a few years ago had a pastor call me, and he was really wrestling with uh, a passage uh, in the, one of the Gospels, I forget the exact verse now, but it was a present middle imperative of the verb for prosyukamai, to pray. Might have been First Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing. And it was the present middle imperative. He looked at that. He was using an interlinear and an analytical, didn't really know Greek that much, was trying to get into the original languages a little bit. And he just kept trying to figure out how you would translate a passive imperative to pray how would that be what what would that mean and he had struggled with this and struggled with this and he was missing the point that prosyukomai with that o-m-a-i ending has a is a deponent verb and therefore it will be labeled as a middle or passive verb in any analytical but it's always translated as if it's an active voice verb so in pray without the verb pray, both deomai and prosyukomai, your two words for prayer, are both uh, deponent verbs, but they have an active meaning. And once I clarified that to him, all of a sudden everything made sense. So logizomai is an active voice verb. It means to to think. 
And as a second person plural in the command here, he is talking to you all as a congregation. You all think, um, and uh, excuse me, it's a second person singular. It's you singular. You think, let a, or it's been a long trip. We drove 2,000 miles in four days, and not only is my seat tired of sitting, but I think I've petrified my brain. This is a second person or third person singular. Uh, let a man, let a person, that's the subject, think. And it is. As a third person, it's not your normal imperative in English. We normally think of an imperative in English as a uh, as a second person. You do this, but as a third person, it is talking about anybody in, a, in the third person uh, position. So it still uh, but has the imperative uh, nuance or a mandate. This is a command. It's not an option. The present imperative indicates something that is a standard practice for the. Believer, This is standard operating procedure for every believer that we are to think in a certain way about pastors. So Paul says, let a man think about us in this manner. And the word translated in this manner is the Greek word hutos, H-O-U-T-O-S. And hutos is a demonstrative adverb that is used here to emphasize a degree or manner or extent and should be translated in this manner, in this way, and to this degree, think. So we're to think a certain way. We're to have a certain, uh, we're commanded to think a certain way about the uh, pastor, or in this case, Paul, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, we're to think a certain, they were to think a certain way about him in terms of his particular ministry. I want to begin with two principles that you should always keep in mind in relationship to a pastor teacher. Because you see in this chapter we're going to talk about evaluating a pastor, and too often people aren't evaluating pastors. They're criticizing, they're gossiping, they're running down a pastor, there's all kinds of innuendos. Well, you know, he said that, but he really doesn't know what he's talking about or whatever it is, but it's a very subtle attack on the authority of a pastor. And unfortunately, we live in an era when the prestige, the respectability, the honor that has been typically given to pastors over the last two or three hundred years of this nation's history has been sullied because of the uh, behavior of some nationally known pastors, some who have been involved in uh, televangelism and television ministries. And so in the last few years, the the trust level, especially in some denominations where there have been those who have been guilty of criminal activity, the trust level towards pastors has been seriously uh, reduced. So we have to keep two important principles in mind, though, because there's always a tendency to idolize or idealize a pastor that he always seems to know the right answers. Well, that's because he's studying the Scripture. doesn't mean he always applies the right answer. So first point is we have to recognize that every pastor teacher is growing spiritually just like you are. He's no different. He has a sin nature. 
And at sometimes every pastor is going to operate on his sin nature just like you do, and just as you expect to be dealt with in grace, you should deal with the pastor in grace because every pastor is going to fail and every spiritual leader is going to fail. Paul had times of carnality. In the Old Testament, you have other leaders who had times of carnality, Moses, David, uh, almost every leader that you know of in the Old Testament had times of carnality. And if you look at periods like the time of the judges, they had extended periods of carnality and were operating on minimal doctrine a lot of the time. And yet, nevertheless, God in his grace puts them in the list of great faith rest heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. So that ought to tell us something about the grace attitude we should have towards spiritual leaders. They are there by the grace of God and not because they are inherently better, not because they're perfect, not because they're sinless. Most pastor teachers are growing spiritually. If you are uh, a if you are honest about your own spiritual life as a pastor, you should be growing and advancing. You shouldn't be immature. That's excluded by the uh, requirements of 1 Timothy chapter 3, but every pastor needs to be growing and advancing. And as such, we have to remember that everybody grows at different rates. There's, it always has seemed to me that some people, especially those with a legalistic tendency, uh, tend to think that if, if God dealt with X, Y, Z sins in their life right off the bat when they were saved, that God's going to deal with X, Y, Z sins in everybody else's life right off the bat. And God, the Holy Spirit, Taylor makes a spiritual life and his work on each of our lives uh, for each one of us individually. And some of us, when we're saved, the Holy Spirit needs to deal with one sin or another. Maybe it's a sin of the tongue. Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it has to do with some sort of uh, overt sin. But God, the Holy Spirit, may deal with that person and that area of the sin nature very quickly. Whereas with the next person, that may be the last area the Holy Spirit really starts to work on as that person is growing. So there's no set pattern, and it's the height of arrogance and legalism to think that everybody else has to mature the same way and at the same rate and the same speed that you mature. So in the same way, you apply that to pastor teachers, and all pastor teachers are growing in different rates and in different areas. Always remember that his sins may not be your sins, but he is to be dealt with in grace just as you are. Spiritual maturity is no guarantee, is no protection from spiritual failure. No matter what happens, the pastor-teacher can always fail, and sometimes uh, pastors have failed miserably, but they should always be dealt with in grace as long as there is that desire on their part to rebound and to recover, to confess their sin, to move forward, and to continue to advance spiritually. Second point, pastor-teacher is a spiritual gift. It's not a personality type. See, it's frequent that we forget that, and we think, especially with the influence of certain movies, that pastors have a certain kind of pleasing, gentle, uh, kind of uh, milquetoast personality, and yet that is not true. Pastors are different. I hang around with a lot of pastors, and they're all different. Some pastors are gregarious. Some pastors are introverts. Some pastors have natural inclinations to be very studious. Other pastors don't have that natural inclination, and it's a struggle for them uh, to be studious. Some like to um, uh, have uh, have great senses of humor. 
Others don't. You know, pastors come in all kinds of shapes and all kinds of sizes, and don't make the mistake of confusing a certain personality with the gift of pastor-teacher. You study the history of the church age, you study some of the great men of the church age and their personalities, and there's some people just have personalities like porcupines. I mean, you just don't really want to get to know them personally, but nevertheless, they had a tremendous ability to get into the Word and a tremendous ability to explain the Word and teach the mystery doctrine of the church age. So don't ever confuse the personality of the pastor with the the gift itself. So how are we to think about uh, pastor teachers and those who it would apply to evangelists as well and those who are in professional Christian ministry? Well, Paul goes on to say, let each man or each one, it uses the term anthropos, which is literally man, but it's used uh, generically for anyone in the human race. Let a man or a person Think about us, that is, those in professional Christian ministry, teaching ministry. Remember, every believer is in full-time Christian service from the moment you're saved. You're given a spiritual gift, and your job, your goal is to mature as a believer, and as you mature, your spiritual gift will become evident. Too many churches and too many groups want to get all, all tied up in knots over what spiritual gift they have. Don't worry about what spiritual gift you have. Just grow and mature and get involved in various areas of Christian service as you mature as a result of your spiritual growth, and your spiritual gifts will become evident. I often liken it to maturing in, in your physical life. As you grow and mature and you go through junior high or even as early as elementary school, you're exposed to all kinds of different things. Your, your parents will expose you to different kinds of activities. They'll try to get you involved in music and athletics and, and various different hobbies just to see what areas of interest you have and where you happen to uh, be strong or where you happen to be weak. And by the time you get to be an adult, by the time you usually get into high school, you'll discover that there's some, like for example among men, some of the guys just really gravitated to something like a wood shop or auto mechanics or something like that. Others would get involved in music, and they were they had a talent in music, and they would be involved in in the choir at, at at school. Others would get involved in instrumental music, or they would they really enjoyed uh, physical activity, and they got involved in athletics. and And as as they were growing up, what happened is they discovered that they had certain likes and certain dislikes and certain abilities and and certain weaknesses. And as they reached maturity, they they tended to gravitate to certain areas. And by the time you you are a graduate of high school and you begin to go out and you get a job somewhere and you find there's some things you like to do and some things you don't like to do. You begin to focus on what your individual strengths and weaknesses and your abilities are. And usually by the time you graduate from college, you realize that you'll never work in the area of your major. And so you're going to go do something else. And I think it's only like 10% of people ever end up working in the field of their college major. In the same way as you advance spiritually, remember every almost every spiritual gift in the church age, and spiritual gifts are restricted to the church age, 
Almost every spiritual gift is also required of every believer. There's a spiritual gift of giving, yet every believer is expected to give financially and support a local congregation, local church. There's a gift of service, yet every believer is expected to serve. There's a gift of teaching, yet every one of us is at some level expected to teach one another, whether it's as a parent to a child or, or friend to friend or whether it's in a, a Sunday school class. We're all expected to encourage one another, yet there is a specific gift of encouraging or, or exhortation so that all the spiritual gifts are, are in specific areas of the ministry to the body of Christ, but nevertheless, we're all expected to, to operate in those areas of responsibility to some level or another. There are just some are going to be gifted, more gifted in those areas. For example, every believer is expected to witness. Yet there are some of you who have the gift of evangelism, and you have a special ability to witness. But that doesn't excuse anyone else from functioning in the area of witnessing just because you don't have that particular a spiritual gift. So we're talking about a particular spiritual gift here, and that is that of pastor-teacher. So how are we to think about a pastor-teacher? First of all, Paul says, as a servant of Christ, let each person think about us, that is, those in the in full-time ministry. See, there are those, you have a spiritual gift, and that puts you in full-time Christian service, but there are those who also go into professional Christian service, pastors, teachers. In fact, whatever your spiritual gift is, it can probably be used by some Christian organization in one way or another. But Paul is talking about those who are specifically in an authority relationship to a local congregation. In this context, he's talking about himself as an apostle and Apollos and others who have been in the congregation as pastors of the Corinthian congregation. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. Now, the word for servants here is not the one that you might expect. The standard word or the most common word translated servant in the New Testament is the word diakonos. That's the noun form, D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S. And the verb form is uh, diakoneo. This is usually translated servant and emphasizes the, uh, the function of the, and the operation of that person in his relationship to other believers. The word is used in, in three different senses in the New Testament. It's used of, uh, the leader of a state or national identity. For example, in Romans, Chapter 13, verse 4, we're told, For it is a minister of God to you for good. That is the authority in the local or the, the, in the national entity. He is considered a, a minister, a servant of the people. He is there to serve the citizenry. It's also used of every believer in passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, uh, 6.4 and 5.18, 
This is used for every believer. Every believer, and this relates to his full-time Christian ministry. And then it's used to refer to the pastor-teacher in passages such as Ephesians 3, 7, Colossians 1, 23 and 25, Colossians 4, 7, and 1 Timothy 1, 12. But this word, although this is the word that is most frequently used, and it's also the word from which we get our word deacon as someone who serves the uh, pastor and serves the local congregation, uh, this is not the word that we find in this passage. We find a word that has a distinct emphasis and is rarely used of the uh, pastoral ministry, and its use here is important. It is the Greek word huperetas. Looks like this. H-U-P-E This is a long E. Huper etas. Now, Huper etas has to do with subordination to authority. In contrast to diakonos, which emphasizes serving or helping someone else. The term here emphasizes its position in relationship to a higher authority. It emphasizes uh, or refers to someone who is a subordinate, someone who is a servant, that, in, in the emphasis of working for someone else, someone who is assistant. The main idea is that it emphasizes someone who is under the authority of someone else. So the idea in the background here is the idea of authority relationship that the apostle, the pastor teacher is a servant of Jesus Christ. The pastor is not an authority to himself, but he is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apostles, pastor, teachers, prophets, evangelists were all under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not an authority unto themselves. See, he's contrasting that to the to the thinkers in the, in the Greek culture that they're used to, they would be an authority unto themselves. They're originating their own teaching, their own philosophical systems. They're the ones who are originating their own truth systems. But the pastor teacher and the apostle in the church is under the authority of Jesus Christ. He is not inventing truth. He is not the source of truth. He's not having truth breakthroughs. He is just taking the mind of Christ and then he is communicating that to the congregation. So the emphasis here is <clears throat> that the pastor teacher is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now this is a central principle in leadership, the idea of subordination to authority. You don't start at the top in life. You start at the bottom. You can't be a good leader unless you're a good follower. You can't exercise authority well unless, first of all, you have learned humility. When you have somebody in a position of authority that hasn't learned humility, that hasn't learned to be a good follower, what you have is someone who will turn into a tyrant, someone who will be unreasonable and irrational, someone who will be self-centered and self-absorbed in what they want to do, and they are not someone who can make a good uh, good leader. 
every good leader recognizes that he is under authority. It doesn't matter who you are or how you, how, how high you are in whatever hierarchy you're in, whether it's in a, in a position of, of a, a corporate position or a position in government. There is always someone over you if it's simply the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the President of the United States serves under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every CEO of every corporation serves under the higher authority, and that is God. There is a responsibility at some level to someone else. The head of a corporation is also accountable at some level to the shareholders. So everybody, to make it anywhere as a leader, you have to recognize that you are under authority, and that means that even at the highest levels, you have to have humility. And as a believer, only as a believer can you have genuine humility, which is based on grace orientation. So the principle here is that the pastor teacher in any congregation is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then we must ask the question, how is the pastor teacher to relate in terms of authority or accountability to a local congregation and the local church board, whether it's called the board of trustees, a board of elders, or a board of deacons? Now, before we get any further, I want to give you a little education about church government. This always comes up, especially, I think there was some discussion of it at the last among some of the candidates at the last ordination we had just this summer down in Houston. But there are historically, in terms of the history of Christianity, there has developed three forms of church government. There's really a fourth one. The first is called the Episcopal form of government. And in the Episcopal form of government, which was developed early in the church, that always tends to blow the minds of uh, seminary students when they start studying church history and realize that around uh, 125 to 140 B.C., you have the development of the the doctrine of what's called the monarchical bishop. And you have uh, evidence of this in the writings of uh, Justin Martyr early in the, in the church, early in the second century of the church. That is the idea that in, let's say you pick a town like Ephesus, and in Ephesus you might have, you know, four different congregations. And one of these pastors, and remember in the church, the, in Greek, the term for bishop is episkopos. E-P-I-S-C-O-P-O-S. That's where we get that word. What happened in the early church was, in terms of organization, they would have these four churches, and remember, it's not like one's a Baptist and one's a Methodist and one's a Presbyterian. You don't have that kind of distinction yet. They all are believing basically the same thing, and they're all fairly solid. But one of these guys is obviously going to have a little more uh, talent and a little more personality, perhaps, a little more leadership skill than the others. And they're living under the Roman Empire, which is a hostile government situation. So they would tend to, the tendency came about to look to one of these guys as the leader. And what developed over time was that this one guy sort of rose to the top and he became first among equals. That's the term that was used to refer to him. And before long, that developed into a hierarchical system where you would have pastors 
and then over the pastors in one area, you would have one guy who would then be called the, the bishop over the pastors. And that eventually developed into the system that you see in the Roman Catholic Church. And it's basically the system that you have in the Episcopal Church and to some degree in the Methodist Church where you have this, this hierarchy. The second form of government is called, usually referred to as simply elder rule or Presbyterian government. Presbyterian government from the Greek word presbyteros which is another word that is used uh, to refer to uh, the pastor. See, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul uses the term episkopos, which emphasizes his function as an overseer. In Titus, he uses the term presbyteros, which is a term that means older. Uh, everybody's learning the prefix here of uh, presby, as we watch those commercials for for eyeglasses or something, a presbyopia, that's when you get old and you can't see anything anymore. Some of us are experiencing more of that than others. But it refers to someone usually older in age, but it is also used by Paul to refer to somebody who is uh, m- more mature spiritually. And so what happens is you have another group of people who take this word out and translated as elder and they make and they emphasize this role of the of the pastor and in a pres, presbyterian form of government you have instead you usually have two boards you'll have a board of deacons and they're responsible for taking care of the property and the finances and other more physical material things and then you'll have another board made up of elders and those elders are considered the spiritually mature men in the congregation, and their function is more towards the spiritual oversight of the congregation. And depending on the church and how it's set up, you will usually have one person who's considered the teaching elder and or pastor, and he is the one who's responsible for the teaching in the church. Now, the problem in the way many elder governments are set up is the other elders think they have more authority than the pastor, and he becomes one, not first among equals, but he becomes one among equals. And so in many elder governments, the pastor is just another one of the guys. And he is no longer the elder. You don't have any one person leading the congregation. It's basically leadership by committee, at least in the way it's practiced in many congregations. And then the third governmental approach is called congregational government. Congregational government, of course, as that word indicates, it is a where the congregation... Uh, tends to have a larger role in decision-making than in an elder government. In elder government, you'll have a, a body of elders, and they make all the decisions. The only time the congregation makes any decision is whether they indicate approval or disapproval of someone who's being appointed by the other elders as an elder. In congregational government, a congregation will have, uh, technically speaking, more input. However, that's, this is all theoretical. 
And let me tell you, as a pastor, I have served, well, I haven't been in an Episcopal form of government, but I've been in congregational governments that were completely out of control. Where, see, a congregational government can go in one of two ways. It can, it can be more like what we are here at Preston City Bible Church, which I would call a representative type of government where the congregation makes, has a lot of input. When we have our annual congregational meeting, we have a place for new business and the congregation can say, well, what about doing this and what about doing that? And they can ask questions and say, well, what did you guys do this last year about the building or about solving the problem with the steeple? And, and uh, they can look over the books and say, well, I don't understand the finances here, so who's running away with the money or whatever it is. But the congregation has input. Uh, then you'd have what I would call an out-of-control democratic, more democratic form of government where you it's, they, they don't trust the deacon board at all, and the congregation wants to make every decision. And the deacon board is not trained in any kind of leadership, so they're pretty passive, and they want to throw, oh, we don't want to do that unless we take a congregational vote. So every time anything of any significance comes up, what they want to do is throw it back to the congregation. Now, the first church I pastored was like that. The, the, the deacons were so cowed by the congregation over the years that they were scared to death to, to make any kind of decision, and you would almost have to have a congregational vote to determine what brand of toilet paper you put in the restroom. So you can see things, how things are actually practiced is, is I think, more significant than what you call people. In my last congregation, which was down in, in uh, Irving in Texas, we had an elder form of government. But that elder form of government functioned no differently than the way our form of government functioned. Whenever we had significant decisions, we would have a congregational meeting, and we would get feedback from the congregation, let people know what was going on. Um, I was really the leader among the elders, and so as a pastor, I had the same level of authority that I have here. So it didn't function any differently. When I was in seminary, we were given an interesting assignment by one of my theology professors, and he, he wanted us to go spend three or four Sundays at each of the different types of, of a church government setups, and then to come back, and we had to write a paper on what we observed and, and what the differences were. Now, I had grown up in a congregational government in Houston where the pastor had a strong authority and leadership within the congregation. The first year I went to Dallas, I went to a, a congregation that was pastored by one of, uh, one of his uh, best friends through seminary, a man by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, who's taught Greek and theology at Dallas Seminary for many years. And Dr. Johnson came out of a Plymouth Brethren background. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Plymouth Brethren, they're strong on elders, and they don't believe in a professional clergy, so they don't have any paid pastors, and they usually have very few people who who have attended seminary, but they do have a well-educated congregation because they, they emphasize the fact that it's the men in the congregation who are responsible to teach the congregation, and most of the people that I've met in my life that have come out of a Plymouth Brethren or what they're referred to as PBers, they come out of a PB background, man, they know Scripture. They have memorized tons and tons of Scripture and the, because they're trained that the men in the congregation are expected to get up and teach, and in the better 
PB congregations, they have some really sound teaching. John Nelson Darby, the founder and systematizer of, of dispensational thought as we know it, was a Plymouth Brethren, and many of the original dispensational teachers in the 19th century all came out of a Plymouth Brethren uh, background. Now, we don't agree with that. There are certainly problems with their setup, but it's not, you know, it, it may sound foreign to your ears, but it's not as evil and wicked as you might uh, think it is. It's What I've discovered is if you've got people in these positions, whether you call them elder, deacon, pastor, bishop, Whatever, if you've got people there that are spiritually mature and understand doctrine and have sound theology, it's going to function the same way no matter what you call them. It's when people are start operating on arrogance and the sin nature that you start seeing things uh, fragment. That's when you start seeing political uh, plays within the congregation, when people divide up and, and make issues out of things that are non-issues and start creating division in a congregation. Now, I believe, personally, we have, don't have time to go through the exegesis of it, that the terms bishop, episkopos, and elder, presbyteros, and pastor, poimenos, all refer to the same individual, but from a different perspective of his responsibilities. As a bishop, he is the overseer of the congregation. As an elder, he is spiritually mature. You should, Paul says in 1 Timothy, you don't put a new convert into a position as a pastor, but someone who has grown and matured so that they don't easily succumb uh, to arrogance. You don't want them believing everything, all their press when everybody goes out the back door, shakes their hands, oh, that was a wonderful message this morning, pastor. You know, they're going to go home and think how wonderful they are and, and um, lose their humility. So we have different types of church government. But what the Bible emphasizes, I have three points here. Point number one is the pastor teacher is the leader of the congregation. Remember, what we're doing here is we're answering the question, what is the relationship of the pastor at some level to the authority of the congregation, to the board of trustees, elders, deacons, or whatever? Now, there's a term I didn't discuss Board of Trustees, that's not a biblical term. doesn't fit into any of these models. What happened in, in the United States in the 19th century, late 19th century, you had the growth of, uh, boom, boom growth of capitalism in the late 19th century and the boom growth of big business and the corporate boardroom. And you would have corporations would be divided up into trustees and you would have various other titles. Well, what happens then when you come over to the church and let's say a local congregation wants to go buy some property, well, in whose name do they buy it? Well, most states have allowed churches to incorporate, but what they want is they want, they use, remember the, the state is operating from a business model, so what they want is some three or four of the men in the church who are going to handle the legal work. So what happened is churches developed a new board called trustees, and these were the guys designated to handle the legal work, to sign on the dotted line when they purchased property, uh, when they made investments, opened bank accounts, uh, things of that nature. And I knew of one church, J. Vernon McGee's church out in uh, California, that was a, a um, had the weirdest board set up I ever heard of. They had a trustee board, they had a deacon board, and an elder board, and they were set up with the checks and balances set up like the U.S. Constitution with the, with the, um, 
you know, with our legislature, judicial branch, and executive branch, and they were set up so that each branch sort of operated as a check on the other. And I grew up with, or I didn't grow up, I, I ministered for a while in an area where the pastor of another Bible church was the son of one of the deacons there. And he said that was the screwiest setup he ever saw because you couldn't get anything done because one group was always in competition with another group. So you see, it, it's just amazing that Christians get anything done. It's got to be just the grace of God. So how does the pastor-teacher relate to whatever you want to call them, the board of trustees, elders, or deacons? First of all, point number one, the pastor-teacher is the leader, is the God-ordained leader of the congregation. That's the emphasis in poimenos as a pastor, a shepherd. A shepherd leads the sheep. He's the one who says, okay, sheep, we're going to go feed over here today. We're going to go feed over here today. No, you're going to keep away from the brambles over here. He's the one in authority, and he is the leader of the congregation. And he leads the congregation in relationship to the teaching of the Word of God. As such, he is under the authority of the local board or under the authority of the deacons or congregation only in sort of a secondary or derivative way. He is not to be viewed as the employee. This is point number two. The pastor-teacher is not to be viewed as an employee of the board or the congregation. You see, I've run into churches where where I've been uh, somewhat interested, perhaps, and, and uh, they were looking for a pastor, and as I began to find out some things, one of the first things I'll discover is the Deacons look at the pastor as their employee. Now, this really happens in churches that have had a number of pastors over a short period of time. And unfortunately, that happens in many churches uh, because the average size of churches in America is under 100. And many pastors will go and they'll pastor a church that's not very large and can't quite pay uh, pay them enough to support, support themselves full-time or support their family. So uh, after they've been there a year and a half or two years, had some experience, then some other church will come along and will uh, make them an offer, and they'll go to the next size church simply. You know, if you, we put a good face on it, simply because they need a little more finances to support their family, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. In many cases, they're just climbing a corporate ladder. And so the uh, the average church or the average um, the average stay of a pastor in the United States is under two years. The average length of stay of a pastor in a local congregation in the United States, and think about that, factor in the number of guys that stay 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, 50 years. The average length of stay is about two years. Now, there's not a whole lot you can get done then, but in many of those churches, you've got deacons that have been there for 30 or 40 years, and over that 30 or 40-year period, they've seen 20 pastors. Well, who do they think, where, where do they think stability lies? Well, stability lies with the board, not with the pastor. This guy's going to be out of here in two years. So they develop this mentality that the, pa- that the pastor is just going to be someone who's going to be here for a short time. He works for us, and uh, he's our employee. And that's completely contrary to Scripture. The pastor, as this passage says, is the subordinate. He is the assistant. He is the he is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
too often when churches develop the attitude, and it happens in big churches too. I'm familiar with a church. I, I won't even mention where it, the location right now because that would give it away. But I know of a church that just hired a new pastor, and there were certain what things that, that happened in the course of that, I just shook my head. Here was a church of uh, several thousand uh, members, several thousand in the congregation, and yet and they, they, they had an elder board, and the way that elder board operated made it look like they were just hiring another employee. And that is, unfortunately, the way that elder board operates, I think that, that the pastor doesn't have a lot of authority. In fact, I heard that the previous pastor probably left uh, when he did simply because uh, there were several decisions the elders made that were 180 degrees opposite the way he thought things ought to go. So they, that board is completely autonomous. They weren't following his leadership at all. Also, along with this same point that the pastor-teacher is not to be viewed as an employee of the local church, we must realize that the church doesn't pay a pastor in the same sense that you are paid for the jobs you do. So you have, that calls for a complete paradigm shift because we're so used to thinking in terms of the way things go every day at, uh, at work. You go in and you work 40, 50, 60 hours, and you get paid a fair wage or salary in return for that. Whereas a pastor is serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and a congregation is giving financially to support the pastor so that he can spend his time studying and teaching and not be distracted by other events, problems, financial pressures in life. When that money leaves your hand and hits the offering plate or offering box, it's no longer yours, it's it's not mine, it is the Lord's. When we give, we give to the Lord. We're not giving to the local church, we're not giving to... XYZ ministry, we're giving to the Lord, we're expecting that, that financial gift to be used in a particular, uh, in a particular group, whether it's a local church or, or a missionary or some other, uh, other function. But that money, once it leaves our hands, if we're grace-oriented, that's the church's and their responsibility to use it. Sometimes they may use it the way we think they should. Sometimes we, they may not. I've, I've heard people say, well, you know, that church, is, they just spent that money, and I don't think they should have spent it that way. I'm going to quit giving. Well, if that's their attitude, they never should have given a dime because they're not grace-oriented. See, grace-oriented means I'm going to treat you in the way you should be treated irregardless of what you do with it. And that includes money. And every church organization, every missionary organization at some time is going to spend their money, decide what their financial priorities are differently from the way you decide what you think they ought to be. That just goes without saying because, you know, they're going to be led by a bunch of sinners. And, you know, may not think this, but the deacons of this church are just a bunch of sinners. And they don't always make good decisions and won't always make good decisions. And um, and they're going to make mistakes. And we all make mistakes. The, the issue is not um, sitting back and second-guessing or playing a Monday morning armchair quarterback on how the church spends the money. The church doesn't pay the pastor a salary. He's not their employee. He is, they are supporting a ministry. The same thing goes in a tape ministry. That tape ministry that we have is truly a missionary uh, outreach. 
I am continuously amazed at where our tapes are going and the impact that they are having in people's lives. When when we get tapes, and often tapers do this, you'll see this transition. First of all, people say, it's a grace ministry. I get all this stuff for free? This is great. And so they just start ordering tapes, and they get they get their tapes for free, and, and they think that's great. And then as they mature and they grow, they begin to realize, you know, there's there's a cost involved here. That that ministry has to has to buy the uh, raw materials, the tapes, and uh, the the materials, the personnel, and everything else. And there's a cost to that. So then they they'll begin to contribute. You know, they'll think, oh, I'm getting ten tapes a month. Let me see. That's probably about five bucks a tape. I'll give them fifty bucks a month. See, and now now they're thinking in terms of an exchange. I'm I'm buying what I'm getting. And then one day they wake up and they realize as they grow in maturity that, that no, that's, this is a ministry that it's not a dollar for dollar thing in terms of the tapes, but those tapes are going to many people who either can't afford to uh, support the ministry at all. They're going to places where, where they're just, they're, they're being given away to hundreds of people, like some of the conferences I go to, uh, and, and we're just getting doctrine out there. And what I'm doing is I'm supporting a ministry. Not, I'm not just buying tapes or I'm not just buying books. I'm supporting a ministry. And so then as they reach that, that mature grace-oriented attitude there, then that really changes the way in which they, they support the ministry. And it happens with, with local churches as well. You have a broader vision of where things are going. So it's not just supporting a ministry. It's not just paying the pastor a salary, but you're, you're, you've got an, a vision of the way God is going to use this, this pastor either locally or at a, at a, at another level. And we are supporting him so that he has the privilege and opportunity to study the word, not to be distracted with financial worries or anything like that so that God can then uh, use him to go out and teach the word and teach doctrine. And that gets us to the third phrase in the verse, that the, the pastor is a steward of the mysteries of God, and that has to do with the teaching of doctrine. You know, too often when, because of the use of the word stewardship in terms of money, whenever people read that in the Scriptures, they always think, well, this has something to do with, with finances. But that's not the meaning of the Greek word. It has to do with an administrator. And we, as pastor-teachers, are administrators of the mystery doctrine of the church age, and that's our function is to teach that. And we'll come back and look at the significance of that uh, next Sunday morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to begin to look at this, this important topic related to the what is expected of a pastor-teacher, what is expected of someone who is an evangelist, someone who is in uh, Christian service in the relationship of teaching, communicating doctrine, and training believers to be uh, good ministers, as Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 states, that we are equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain about their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture tells us that we are all lost. We are all fallen. We are under the penalty of spiritual death. But that Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross as our substitute and that he has paid the penalty for sin. So that in order to apply that to ourselves, all we have to do is to accept it by believing 
that Jesus died for us. It's not a matter of morality or good works. It's not a matter of being a member of the right church. It's not a matter of ritual. It is simply a matter of accepting the fact that, that I can do nothing. Jesus did it all on the cross, and I believe that he died on the cross as my substitute. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to voice a certain prayer. God knows in his omniscience what you are trusting for your salvation. Once you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life, and that can never be taken away from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.